thought it might be helpful to start today by acknowledging that the, I said this earlier, the resources for Romans 9 got very narrow commentary and, 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 and some written works, but uh, I, I did want to share with you all some helpful resources that I have found over the last few weeks. And even as you heard Kayla reading all of Romans 9 together, you just realize like there is a lot here to sort out. And we're not even going to try to get to all of it today. And I don't say that to be discouraging. The study has been done. I would love to talk to you maybe about specific questions that you have. But today I really do have a, a sense of burden that, that we, I want to serve us as a church by what it is that I believe that God is speaking to us as a church today directly from this. We are a church that believes in the doctrine of election. It is a difficult doctrine to understand. Uh, it is God's choosing. It's really simple like that, and it's, it's easy to understand from that standpoint, but at times very difficult to accept, especially when there are people that we love <clears throat> that seem to be walking away from the faith, and that can be so discouraging to just walk through that for sometimes years and even have that question pass, in their passing. But I do want to recommend a couple of what I have found to be helpful resources. One, uh, actually, it, it's one author and two different books. Uh, John Stott's commentary on Romans. He has one called The Message of Romans. I would call that like the teacher's edition. If you just love to dig into the Word of God and, and not just do like word studies where you kind of like define every word and then you define every word in the definition. And if you want to understand about more how to do this, just ask my mom. It's like watching, you know, a beautiful mind work in the Word of God. It's, it's crazy what she'll do with outlines. And uh, so if you want the teacher's edition where you can see the scriptures, all of scripture that's connected to that, uh, I would recommend The Message of Romans by John Stott. Uh, just so that you know, uh, we provide links. Anytime that we reference a resource like this, uh, we'll provide links, my notes that are going to go online. Uh, I am not going to get through my full outline today, but my full outline will be posted online uh, for community group leaders and anyone that needs that uh, today. Uh, so we'll have links to these resources as well. But there is a devotional summary of Stott's work, and it's called Reading Romans with John Stott, uh, which almost makes me think of like when I was growing up, there were those records, and then they would you know, have a chime, and then you'd turn the page. It's not like that at all, but that's what came to mind, and I don't know why I shared that right now. Um, Stott's commentary, Reading Romans with John Stott. It includes a discussion guide in case you want to not just study this further, but actually go into discussion with others as well, whether that's in small group or any other ways. They're available uh, electronically, Amazon, Kindle, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I mention this because Paul is focused now on the sovereignty of God. We've gone through sin. We've gone through justification, salvation. We've gone through his uh, sanctification, and now we are talking about the sovereignty of God. And it's, it can feel a bit abrupt But I think that Paul wants to bring clarity to some things like our own worldview assumptions. Maybe even some potential assumptions or presuppositions that we kind of walk into God's word with. When we are preaching, one of the things that we say is we kind of have this, this saying that we want to think ourselves empty, we want to read ourselves full, we want to write ourselves clear, we want to pray ourselves hot, and we want to preach ourselves empty. It's kind of how we talk about like the preparation process, and sometimes that happens over a week, sometimes that happens over months, um, but when I say think yourself empty, I don't mean that we kind of like 
check out of reality and the minds that God has given us. What I mean is that we set aside things that might be influencing how it is that we approach a passage of Scripture. And, and, and really, I think that's important for us today, that we, we kind of think ourselves empty because sometimes those ways that we bring presuppositions or there's some kind of worldview dist- distortion or things that we've kind of heard and it's like, well, yeah, I have a question about that too. Like, sometimes that's helpful and sometimes that's not. And we need discernment from the Holy Spirit to know when that's right. And so I think today it's best for God's Word to speak to us most directly than any of these other things. But I think that the reason that Romans 9 exists is because Paul still wants to provide assurance to those who believe. And you may think like, well, it seems like he's drawn a pretty hard line for it to be about assurance. No, I I think it's about assurance. I think it's about those questions that you and I wrestle with when there's still sin that remains in our lives. And it's about those questions that come up to, to our minds whenever it is that we we see something that is a promise of God and yet we don't see the fulfillment of it yet. And we wonder, is the promise of God enough? He, he wants us to see the, the nation of Israel as God's chosen and covenant people, not in a political sense, not in the sense that, that it has anything to do with like global economic or political structures today as it can be so conflated to, but the people of God's own choosing because when we have questions about what it is that's going on politically there are times that it might actually affect our faith anybody ever experienced that I think Paul's still speaking to assurance and he's doing it in a way that says when it's God's choosing his choice is enough and and that's amazing to think about It, it it really does a deal, it really does deal with and address things that are going on as it has to do with mine and your very personal individual relationship with God as we are brought together as his covenant people. The people who will one day inhabit for eternity the kingdom of God, the people who are today called to live for that kingdom. And Paul starts in an interesting place. He starts with a heart for those who are lost. He starts in 1 through 5 with a heart for those who are lost. A a number of years ago, I was in Haiti, and I bumped into a couple of friends. Not the airport you expect to bump into friends. Port-au-Prince, Haiti. But I bumped into a couple of friends who, well, they're baller. Like, these ladies are crushing it. Uh, They run an organization called P4H. I highly recommend them. Uh, They are making a difference in the nation of Haiti. But we started talking about the church. And they were asking the question of, why is it that some people in the church seem to be fine with studying theology, but they don't really ever share with others? They teach a lot, but they don't actually like go and share with others. And I think Paul would really struggle with that thought. That, there, that there's this place that, that people study and they have this immense knowledge about God and His character and, and they have this clarity that comes to the things of God and yet they're, they're, what we would call their theology doesn't inform their missiology, right? That being on mission for God isn't informed by what they know about Him. And I think that's just a dangerous place to be. But I have a question for you today. 
Is that true for us? Are we fine kind of drawing the line at theology and go, wow, I've never seen or understood that before? And then you just kind of keep it to yourself. It doesn't change how you share with others. It doesn't change what it is that, that you're sharing with others. See, Paul has a heart for God's people, but Paul has a heart for his people as well. He was himself Jewish. This is God's covenant nation. This is actually the lineage of our Savior, Jesus. But can I say, we have to do the same thing today. We don't presume on lineage or heritage. We don't presume on our upbringing or our grandmama's big tent revival experience. We don't want to presume on those things. So let me ask you this. Who are you praying for today? Like, you don't, have to be on, you don't have to be in an airport in Haiti to be on mission. You realize that? You don't even have to go to Casa to be on mission. You can just give toward that. But even then, we don't outsource mission. We don't outsource mission like that. We are individually called to have a heart for the lost like this. So who are you praying for today? Let's not get caught up in the number of, you know, there's 178,000 households within three miles of this building right now. That feels overwhelming to me. Because I'm not called to be at every one of those houses as their savior. But I have to ask myself this question, who's the one person I'm praying for today? What's that unique opportunity that's going to come up where it's, you realize you're not in an airport in Haiti, but all of a sudden, this, I believe the book used to be called Divine Appointment, has opened up for you. Well, let me share one for, for you from this last week. Our car broke down in the worst possible moment. Right in the middle of traffic, rush hour, heading into the office, in the middle of the street. I barely had this, you know, like when the car shuts down, the, the automatic steering is gone, which means you're like you're wrestling that wheel to the side. And you're upset because the car, so you have the strength all of a sudden to wrestle that wheel to the side. And we kind of coasted into what ends up being a friend of mine's business and parked in, a, in, his, in his lot. And later that day, I had meetings all day. And later that day, I was back, only kind of enough of a window to meet the tow truck driver. So he's there. He's getting the car hooked up. I said, great, here's the shop it's going to. And then I get a text from him because I was already back at, at, at work and I get a text from him with a picture of my car. And I was like, well, thanks. I get, like, this is weird and new. Like, I don't know, how would this be related to COVID? Well, it wasn't. It was actually showing me the wheel well he had slid down the side of another car in towing our vehicle. I've never had this experience before, and neither had he, in, as he told me later, in 40-some-odd years of towing. I'm glad to be here to be that opportunity for you, sir. <laughs> he had heard in, in our brief interaction as I'm handing him the keys to the car to take it to the shop that I was a pastor. This man may or may not be here this morning, so I want to be careful what I share here. But he was scared to let me know. Thank God in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and just slowed the roll on everything for the rest of the day. That's not my natural response. That's supernatural. 
my natural response is, why me? And then he shared about loss in his family over the last year and a half. And I had the opportunity to pray with him. Those don't happen all the time. Don't, don't misunderstand. But don't miss having a heart for people. Because you have a heart for your own convenience. See, I had the opportunity to share the mercy and kindness I've been the recipient of. So who are you praying for today? Who needs to hear your heart for them? Not just as people of God, but as people created in the image of God. Being drawn through his kindness and his mercy. Oh, we'll get to that. He'll have mercy on who he has mercy. But the gospel's offensive enough on its own. I don't have to add to it. The gospel says I'm not enough. I don't have to remind people of that. The gospel says that there's not something I can do or accomplish on my own. I don't have to point that out in some self-righteous, judgmental way towards someone else because I've been in that same spot myself. So who are you praying for today? Don't get overwhelmed by the number of households around this church. Be overwhelmed by the one that the Lord lays on your heart today. Be overwhelmed by the one in your family. Be overwhelmed by the one in your workplace. Be overwhelmed by the one in your campus. That God is saying, pray for them. Because if the Holy Spirit is laying them on your heart, can I tell you what the rest of the sentence is? And watch what I'll do. The Jewish people had received a number of benefits. Beginning in verse 4, Paul names them. Now, this is an adaptation of some materials that we've seen in Keller's, Tim Keller's book, Romans, for you. But let's just run through briefly the benefits that Israel had received. They had received adoption as sons. This is actually referring to Exodus 4.22 and other places where Israel is called God's son, that is his people. They had received the divine glory. This is the Shekinah. This is Shekinah showing up in the New Testament. They had received this manifestation of his presence. They had received the dwelling in their midst in the tabernacle and in the temple. They had been led through the wilderness by his divine glory. They received the covenants. They received the covenants that defined the relationship most specifically. And then they kept walking away from those covenants. It reveals their unbelief. But every time that he revealed a covenant, he pointed to someone that was coming to fulfill the covenant for them. They were, he was pointing to the Messiah. They had the receiving of the law. The, the, they had the, the Ten Commandments and the law that was given uh, to the nation of Israel. They had the temple worship. That this was a visible order of service. Have you ever noticed that some churches look different than others in, t- in terms of what their liturgy is, their order of service, the, the ways that they go from one thing to another? Today feels quite different than even our quote-unquote normal. But they had that. They had like the right way to worship God, defined by Him. And all of these God-given rituals were showing that they could not just approach God willy-nilly in any manner that they felt like it. You know, today I feel like 
No. He was being told, they were being told that they had to approach in a specific way. There was a priest. There was a sacrifice. There were all of these things. We see that Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our priest. He is our purity. He is our bread. All of those things are revealed to us in Christ. They had the promises, prophecies about this coming Messiah. They had the patriarch. Now, this probably is not just referring to Adam at this, or excuse me, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob at this point, although they are noted in this particular passage. This is, they actually have all of these great leaders. They have uh, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David. They had all of these other leaders as well to be able to look to to understand, but virtually every one of them pointed to the Messiah, the one who was coming to save. It's easy to miss this one, but from them, it says, is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being able to say, like, my heritage has the ancestry of Christ? Paul even is acknowledging, these are my kinsmen. And yet they had become an affront to them. And we may want to ask here, if they had all of these things, if they had all these privileges, they had all these benefits, and we realize that we have so much more than those things, nothing less than those things, but we have so much more of those things fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if they weren't saved, where can I find some sense of security for salvation? In my moments of doubt, in my moments of failure, in my moments, how is it that I can know an assurance of salvation? Paul's way ahead of you. He wants us to understand that God's word does not fail. God's word does not fail. See, God had promised, he's going to look at this kind of in in verses 6 through 10. He's going to look at this and say, specifically in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. See, God had promised to bless Israel, but they forfeited his blessing through unbelief. Now, I'm not talking about like great pumpkin Charlie Brown unbelief where Linus walks around like if he has some moment of doubt. See, th- that's what's dangerous about letting the world... First of all, I just referenced child. Anyway, um, let's go here. Isn't it easy to think that our questions are too big for God? Isn't it easy to think that the things that I'm wrestling with, the things that I'm struggling with, nobody ha- throughout all of human history has ever thought or wrestled with before? Isn't it easy to think that all of these things that I'm walking through, this this thing not happening in the time frame that I thought it was going to, this person not responding the way that I thought that they were going to, this life relationship going awfully. Isn't it easy to think, well, what does this mean about God? Paul wants to address those things very specifically and say that God is big enough for your questions and your doubts and he has an answer and it's found in himself. Don't look to the left or the right. Don't don't look to the world around you. Don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Don't look to those things. Look to him. And when you look to him, don't look through the lens of the world either. Look through the lens of his word. 
how it is that he reveals himself, how it is that he says, this is who I am. Because you know what's interesting about this? Through the years, through the decades, it's never changed. The questions, the struggles, they change, don't they? They they seem to come and go as, as fast as things trend on Twitter. And yet this has never changed, where he says, look through this lens. I said the same thing. I've already given you the answer. Is it as if the, God, the, the Word of God can fail? Paul says, no. The Word of God doesn't fail. Well, what about this? We get into this whataboutism, and isn't that so much like our culture today, where we just kind of start running off into these things that say, what about, what about, what about? And Paul just keeps pace with everyone. Actually, he doesn't keep pace. He stays out in front of them. Think about the questions that he asks. He says, it's not as though the word of God failed. That God's mercy and his patience are the things that are on display. That in his purposes, there is the mercy of God. And so we kind of wrestle with this idea of what about those who he chooses before their birth? And what does that remind us of? It reminds us that there is nothing that we accomplish in this life, that there is nothing that we become or try to aspire to or anything like that that is the reason that we're saved. What is it? It is the mercy of God alone. So how do we respond as believers, as those who believe? Be amazed at the mercy of God and don't presume on it. How is it that we share with others? God doesn't tell us who's his elect. Share with everyone as if they are. It's simple. We don't have to have a prophetic word of like, oh, I see the flame of fire over their head. They must be elect. Make it a lot easier. Certainly make it seem like our percentage of salvation is better. But God's not keeping track of that. Why do we? I'm way off notes. I'm going to stay there. We're going to get through this. Here's what we may be tempted to think, though. That seems unfair. That seems unfair that God would do that. It might even be unjust. Like we talk about God as one who is just, but it, it might be unjust. If that's so much a part of his character, why, why would he be unjust in this way? But once again, Paul understands this and he helps to shape our understanding. Not through the lens of the world looking up, but through how God reveals himself throughout history. If we look down to verse 14, we see this, that God displays his mercy in his purposes. I actually think that verse 16 is kind of like the main point of Romans chapter 9. What does it say in Romans 9.16? It says this, So then, look with me, Romans 9.16, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's amazing. It's not the poison pill that comes with the gospel. It's not like the part we don't talk about. This is celebrated as the good news. The doctrine of election is celebrated as the good news. It's not some theological point to be debated. It's the goodness of God revealed in his character. It says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 
See, the, the temptation is to think that like Pharaoh became hardened because God like touched his heart and then it hardened. No, Pharaoh was born hardened just like me and you. He uses Pharaoh illustratively, but he's saying if in Adam he was born, he was hard to begin with. His heart was hard to begin with. What happens in that moment of regeneration? That hardness becomes softened. That hardness becomes softened. Keller, again in Romans for you, says this, when God hardens someone, he does not create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden, and all those whom he hardens want to be. And you may struggle with that statement. Can I say how Paul says it? God left them to their own desires. See, remember, we're all born this way. In Adam's sin, his original sin. There's not something inherently good in us that gets corrupted. God's hardening of Pharaoh, the the removal of his common grace, that is the grace that is available to all of us even today, Pharaoh is then given over over to his own desires. God abandons him to his own stubbornness. Talk about the height of arrogance. It's not unjust. It's not unfair. It certainly is a judicial act. It does have an eternal sentence. But that should sober us to wonder. See, the wonder is not that some are saved and some are not. It's that anyone's saved at all. Now, Paul's going to quote, and he's going to illustrate God's mercy being poured out on us, not only through Pharaoh, as we just saw, but he's going to use another analogy that begins in verse 19. And in in 20, it says this, What is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and for another dishonorable use? Now, I don't know if anyone notices this, but Paul actually is putting on a master class of preaching. Right? He is using Scripture to interpret what he's saying to help us apply this rightly. He's, going, he's reaching in the Wayback Machine. He's going back to history, and he's pulling these moments out, and he's saying, look, this is what I'm talking about. And he's bringing all of those things together, but more than that, he uses a practical everyday illustration. During, during COVID and quarantine, when it was just the live stream team here as a preaching team, we talked about this, like what are things that might be sitting next to someone in their living room that we can use as an illustration today? Or, or like there was one time I used a coffee filter because we were kind of making the assumption you were drinking coffee during the service. I don't think that's a wrong assumption to make, but Paul's putting on a master class here because he's using Scripture to interpret what he's saying and to back up what he's saying. That's a great way for our uh, group leaders to be developed. And then he's using practical, everyday examples. What is the example he uses here? Pottery. He uses pottery. A clay pot. Everyone in Rome, no matter their socioeconomic status, had clay pots for pottery. Actually, there is a mound that is there, and I think there's a picture for the screens. The ESV Archaeology Study Bible references Mont Testacio, artificial hill. It's more than 100 feet high. It's made entirely of broken pottery from the Roman era. It's 
mound covers more than 200,000 square feet. It's estimated to contain the remains of 53 million olive oil storage vessels that were shipped to Rome. Now, pottery is an illustration. It does something for us, doesn't it? It kind of illustrates the disparity between God and man. Now, there's, there is part of biblical teaching that affirms our likeness to God in creation, that we are created in his image. But though distorted because of the fall, we need to understand this, that since we are image bearers of God, that means that we are rational and we are responsible. We are moral and spiritual beings. This means that we're able to engage with God as we explore his revelation, to ask questions, not thinking that they're too big for him. Paul's emphasis in this illustration of the potter and the clay is to do this. Is to show that he has the right to shape for different purposes. As the one who creates, he has the right to shape for different purposes. So we understand, as John Stott says, God has the right as our creator to deal with fallen humanity according to both his wrath and his mercy. See, that that makes the doctrine of election easy to understand, but at times very difficult to accept. Now, Paul's way of helping us through that is not to try to, like, double down on it because we are in the mysteries of the goodness and the mercy of God. We are in the mystery of the gospel. But Paul wants to point us to something else. He, he's not, it's not a diversion. He's not trying to distract us with something shiny over here. He's saying this, don't focus on that. Focus on the excellence of the mercies of God. Isn't that what we experienced in worship this morning together? There is another question that happens, though. If this is true, why would God still blame us? We're going to move toward the close here. I don't know if anybody needs to warn TruthQuest. I've gone way over today. See, because God is rushing toward his people, how is it that we are the ones that are held responsible? Well, we are still image bearers. We are still these moral and responsible beings. But God is expanding his kingdom through us. He is expanding who his covenant people are. And he is actually kind of narrowing it as it relates to the nation of Israel. And he is expanding it as it comes to those around the world that his grace and his mercy are effective for. Let's actually look at verse 25 together where we see that there is the expanding kingdom and there is the expansion of the covenant people. It says in the book of Hosea, At the end of verse 25 of chapter 9 of Romans. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. There it is. There's the expansion around the world. If you want to understand where it is that the covenants go from just specifically to the nation, it's because God said so. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. He's not tolerating us. He's not saying, look, the doctrine of election is so good, I even chose them. No. He says we're beloved. 
Paul wants us to look closely at the promises of God. Not to be offended by them, not for them to be offensive to us. And the reason I say that is because of where he's going to go in just a moment as he talks about a stumbling block, a stone of offense. See, as we think about these texts that Paul is quoting from Hosea and Isaiah, it's important for us to understand that there were the New Testament hearers would have understood something about the Old Testament prophets. It wasn't quite divided that way. I'm, I'm saying it that way for our understanding today. But there was a threefold fulfillment that was going to happen in prophecy. There was an immediate and literal fulfillment in times of the Old Testament. There, there was secondly going to be an intermediate, that there was going to be a spiritual fulfillment in Christ and His church. And lastly, there's going to be an eternal and an ultimate fulfillment in God's kingdom for His glory. I want to be careful here to separate the politics of the state of Israel from the covenant nation of Israel. My goal today is not to speak ill of a nation or to even enter the political fray. But Israel's rejection of the covenants of God with all of the privileges and benefits given to them is due to their own unbelief. See, they were the one that kept walking away. All of those were things that should have pointed them to the Messiah, that should have helped them understand that the promised one had come. And yet in their own unbelief, they were what? Hardened and given over. See, Paul's not saying that the Jewish people or Israel would be excluded from the work of Christ, that they would be included, but it would be that remnant that saw Christ for who he was the righteousness of God on display for you and for me and for them. There's a stumbling stone that's introduced at the end of Romans chapter 30, and here's where we're going to close today. It's not some rabbit trail, as I said earlier. It's not random musings of Paul as he got distracted in a water break. Paul ends Romans 9, in the second half, he asked the question two different times. What shall we say then? Does that sound familiar? It should, because it's in Romans chapter 8 as well. This is why I think it's two sides of the same coin for our assurance. What shall we say then? How are we going to respond to this? What will be the declaration of our mouth? What will be the testimony of our lives? What shall we say then? See, Paul is still extrapolating the arguments of the nation of Israel and Gentiles being included in the righteousness of Christ that's available to us through faith. He's acknowledging the work of the law, which we, we'll see more about that in the weeks ahead as we go through 10 and 11 in the next two weeks. But I think there's a helpful summary here from Tim Keller as it relates to this stumbling stone. Tim says this, the ones who knew the most about God, that would be the nation of Israel, the ones who knew the most about God did not come to know God. While the ones who knew the least about God came to know God best. The ones who wanted to be righteous ended up dead in their sins, while the ones who least wanted to be righteous ended up holy and blameless in his sight. Romans 9, verse 32, paints a very stark picture for us of those who do not approach God by faith and they're approaching based on their works alone. They're said to trip over a stumbling stone. Who is that stumbling stone? 
Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ himself. From Isaiah to the Psalms all the way through the first Peter, this closing refrain from today's passage echoes throughout Scripture, that there will be a stumbling stone. Why does that matter? Well, because Christ, as a stumbling block, it removes all of our effort. It removes all of our own self-righteousness. It removes all of our accomplishments. It removes our status. It removes the size of house we live in, the place that we work, the education that we have or have not. It removes all of those things. And it says, this is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's a stumbling block for some. I'd like to have the band go ahead and join me. You may be here today and wonder, how do I know if I'm one of the elect? I struggle with that. How do I know if I am one of the elect? Can I tell you that Scripture tells you to do this? Ask. Ask that big question. You may say, I don't understand what you mean. Well, that's okay. Let's look at it together. If we go to Matthew Chapter 7 and verse 7, it says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now see, a lot of you started quoting that with me. But our minds don't go there when it comes to the doctrine of election because it seems too simple, the answer. And yet it's Jesus' words, which means it's him, which means he's the answer. So let's not overthink this. How do you want to be sure? Ask and it will be given. If that's how the Holy Spirit is stirring you and you say, well, that sure seems like that's something I have to do. All right, fine. Let's look at another passage together. Let's just look. Go, go to Revelation. If you go to the book of Revelation, to the church in Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, oh, what? It's not just communion with him. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Whose effort is it? Is it mine or Christ's? Yes, it's both. But if you're here today and the the Spirit is stirring, ask. Seek. Knock. You will not be turned away. There are other scriptures that tell us that let him who has ear to hear listen to these words, lest your heart be hardened. Is the Spirit speaking to you today? Ask, is he one who is knocking at the door of your heart? Answer. Church, would you stand with me, please? Why does any of this matter? Why do we take the time that we do with a passage like this? Christ is a stumbling block, removes any sense of our own self-righteousness. It helps us to understand that any form of humanly generated 
righteousness is hollow, more than that, it's worthless. It helps point us to our Savior. True righteousness by faith, as we're told in Romans 9.30, means that we come to God with the empty hands of faith, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Can we respond and worship together?
team forward and any of our deacons that are here as well I think the most important thing that we can do is help someone who's asking see that through now we, we understand this to be a saving faith we understand this to be salvation. We understand this to be eternal security. And if that's something you are wrestling with, if you're one who says, yes, when it comes to the doctrine of election, I have a question about that. And I don't mean a theological debate. I mean, am I there? You are not promised this afternoon this evening or tomorrow let alone the days ahead and whatever it is that has you waiting to answer this call so don't wait past today if you sense the Savior is knocking when I read that passage and you said I am asking and he seems to be knocking what are you waiting for I'm not going to tell you that this afternoon your bank account is going to be full, your circumstances are going to be different, that that relationship that is broken is going to be restored, or any of those things. What I'm going to tell you is that in eternity, you will be a son or daughter of God. That is what's most important for right now. Not that those other things don't matter, not that we don't feel the effects of those things, but can I tell you this, your perspective on those things can change when your relationship is right with the one who's called you. Here's why these individuals are here now. To pray the salvation prayer. That in faith, you're not going to put your faith in your own efforts anymore. That you're going to say more than just sing, you're going to say with the way that you live your life, this is all my righteousness. There's nothing that I could do that for my sin would atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can cover me. And if that's you today, I'm going to ask you to take a bold step and just right now move from your seat and come. Move from your seat and come. Draw near to the one who is drawing near to you. He will not turn you away. In his presence, there is the fullness of joy, not the rightness of circumstances, not all of these prosperous things from the way that we think about it in this worldly, materialistic mindset There is the fullness of joy knowing that that question can be answered by Jesus Christ alone. When he says, when you open the door and you ask, I will not turn you away. Actually, in in the book of John where he's talking about and he invites us to abide in him, he invites us to abide in him in a way that says this, I invited you to abide in me because I chose you to abide in me. I have all of these wonderful gifts. I have this flourishing life that is for you, but I chose you to do this. Is he calling you to himself now? I know what time it is. I know the kids are restless. 
I'll apologize to Truth Quest later, but this is the most important thing we can do right now. And can I tell you, you are surrounded, maybe not by patriarchs, but people who have been in the seat where you are right at this moment. We are not watching you to judge you. We are praying you would receive the Savior and commune with Him. We're just going to take another moment right here that we might respond and we might receive. to be here for those who need prayer. I am aware yesterday I had the opportunity to be at the Alive Beach Day just as a dad uh, because Shane is the youth leader so I just got to sit back and be dad. (laughs) It's great. It's far less exhausting than I remember. He's on vacation for a week to recover. It's the wildest thing. You know, there's something cool I saw there though. I saw this heart for people who were lost in action amongst our teens because they were inviting friends. They were inviting friends to be a part of this fellowship. They were inviting friends to be around others that can influence them for the things of God. I am aware today that Robert and Beth Watler may be watching this live stream if they've made it this far into the live stream. But more than being aware of the 60 some odd days that Beth has been in the hospital and the back and forth of the two of them needing the doctor's attention over those couple of months, Roberts had the opportunity to share, I think with no less than a dozen people, the good news of the gospel. That's what it looks like to live with a heart for people, a heart for the lost. I share those testimonies with you because as a church, we may not be able to see those things, but as a church, we are seeking to live these things. I want to highlight that for us as a gathering. But who's the person that you can invite 
to community group or over to your home for dinner? Who's the person that you might take the bold step of like shocking, invite them here next Sunday that they may receive this mercy, that they may sense the asking of their questions being answered by the knocking of the Savior. Let's be a church that lives this together. Amen. First Peter in chapter 2 speaks of this not stumbling stone, but a living stone. It's the same stone. It's the one that many will stumble over, but it speaks of us as his holy people as well. If you're here and you have questions about what you've heard today, we have a connect card in the back that you can fill out. If you're online, just go to metrolife.org connect. I feel like you heard a call for giving earlier and what was going on with Fidel. He'll be in the back. I hear it sounds like the children are restless in the lobby already. But can we think about what it is that Christ does, not as our stumbling stone, but as our living stone, the cornerstone of this church when he calls us together. And he says this, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul keep your conduct honorable so that when others speak against you they may see your good and glorify God and church may God bless you as you seek to live for his glory alone this week Metro family, I'm here with some updates on what's going on in our church life this week. First off, men, there's a men's meeting coming up on this Saturday morning, June 12th at 8 a.m. Eddie Needham is going to lead a conversation on worship as a lifestyle, so you're not going to want to miss it. Breakfast will be served as usual, so make sure you mark your calendars now. And second, this is the last opportunity for you to sign up for our graduation recognition. It's going to be next Sunday during our Sunday celebration. We really want a chance to celebrate with you your huge accomplishments. So if you have recently graduated from high school, college, or vocational school, go ahead and visit our website and sign up so that you can be a part of our celebration. Thanks so much for tuning in. Can't wait to see you throughout the week as we live life together.